Well, hi, this is Phil Migliorati, Pray for Surf, and good friend Mark Dillon, 50 Sides of the Beach Boys, for another podcast. Hello, Mark. How are you today? I'm great, Phil. How you doing? Doing good. We're going to talk about heroes and villains, not the song itself, although we could probably spend a whole podcast on that. I think the idea for this, at least as I thought of it, was, uh, you know, there's no one phrase or book title. You know, if you write a book about the Beach Boys, uh, what 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 one phrase can you use to describe them? But oftentimes when I think about their career, this song title comes to mind. I know it was used as a title of uh, one of their books, Brian's books, but uh, Heroes and Villains. There's just so many people in Beach Boy Nation, uh, and some of them heroes, some of them villains. We'll talk about that in another podcast later. But uh, when we talk about villains, we haven't shared our names yet. We're going to do that in the next couple of minutes. But what do you think of, think of when you describe what a hero would be in the, the life of the, the Beach Boys? Well, when you uh, suggested this idea, I got to thinking about uh, who would be the heroes in, in the Beach Boys 50-plus year saga. And uh, to me, it's the people who helped make the group possible, the, the, the people that were there at the beginning, got them over the hump to the point where they were you know, a legitimate concern, and, and the people that helped sustain them over that long period of time and the people that helped them evolve over that long period of time. Yeah, I think we're in the same boat. I've got some from early and some from late, and uh, who knows? We'll, we'll maybe uh, invent some as we go along. So uh, I'm not sure how we'll handle this. We'll kind of figure it out as we go along. But how about you start with, uh, let's, let's both tell our number ones, and, and, then, and then we'll just maybe go back and forth from there. So who's your number one, the top, top of the list hero? Beach Boys would not exist. We'd be in, in a different alternate universe if it weren't for this person. So my list is uh, organized basically chronologically. And uh, okay. to me, it all starts with Murray Wilson. Okay, I'll say the same. Murray Wilson, number one in mind. Go ahead. You uh, unpack that a little bit. Well, I mean, he, he's their dad. Without, without him, there would be no Wilson brothers. So <laughs> that, 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 you know, I, yeah, I hadn't considered that, that. yes. But, I mean, you can't underestimate how important Murray was to, to getting this band uh, going. I mean, they were, they were kids. They were teenagers. They knew nothing about, uh, about the music business. I mean, Murray had had some experiences in that regard, and, and hey, nothing was going to hold him back. Um, really, it was Al Jardine that uh, I think was the most uh, interested in a recording career at the very beginning, and, uh, you know, being a friend of Brian's, Murray set him up with uh, Height and Dorinda Morgan to uh, record some demos and, you know, hopefully move his career forward. And then uh, Al came back a little bit later with uh, the Beach Boys, you know, as we would uh, know them. And uh, so, the, you know, it started there. And, uh, you know, we should just add that somebody could be on the heroes list and the villains list. I don't want to tip my hand too much uh, today on that, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, let's talk about the, the good things that, that Murray did. And, uh, and there were many, you know, yeah. for example, here's a nice thing that he did, uh, you know, surfing their first single when they got the royalty check, they got 900 bucks. Murray thought they were getting stiffed. So uh, he, he topped it up with $100 of his own so that the five boys could divide it up and get $200 each, you know. So he was, he was being encouraging. He, he could be, you know. And uh, anyway, he, he wasn't really happy with uh, the quality of the stuff that, that Height and Dorinda 
had recorded with the band. Um, and so he took them to Western Studio. He produced sessions, you know, that yielded Surf and Safari, 409, Lonely Sea, like, you know, the, the early great songs uh, for the group. He, he got them signed to Capitol Records. He wasn't going to take no for an answer. You know, Brian was, was not uh, a very strong uh negotiator let's say and so you know they needed murray in their corner i mean brian wanted to record at better studios he wanted to go to places like united western but he was too afraid to make any demands uh out of capital but uh murray did that for him and uh he was their manager he pushed them in concert he pushed them in the studio uh there's no question he paved the way for their early success yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you've covered it well, um, even from you know the very birth part, which I thought of. But uh, also in those, those early days uh, as a family, just give a musical environment. Uh, one point, uh, if I got this correct, converted their garage into a, a room or bedroom or music room, or at least became a music room for Brian. And and so uh, and we could go through each of the stages that you mentioned where where he was just uh, proactive on their behalf, uh, relentless at times. Uh, as you mentioned, new, fresh recordings. Uh, he also went after uh, a recording contract, eventually twisted Capital's arm, I think, to, you know, to, get, uh, to get them a recording contract, which turned out to be a f- f- fantastic label to be on. Not always, maybe they can be a villain uh, in a, one of our calls, other podcasts, but uh, recording contract, uh, read stories of him driving up and down, you know, the towns and not too far from LA to uh, go to the DJs and hand out 45s and try to get them, you know, their record played. So promotion, uh, the tours, I'm guessing, uh, you know, he, he had some hand in setting those up, although I think David Mark's mom was part of that as well. Um, publishing, you know, the, the publishing story of Sea of Tunes is, is there's there's not a good ending to it, but there wouldn't have been a beginning to it if it wasn't for him. So I, I think with Murray Wilson, we can get on and leave it from here, but I think with Murray Wilson, maybe with a lot of these people, it's it, if they do something that isn't good, and in fact, he's done some things, even even in concurrent times with the things we're mentioning, that were very painful, uh, abuse, harmful. Um, you know, we suddenly uh, forget or discredit or uh, try to erase, eradicate uh, the good things done. So w- w- as we tried to say briefly at the beginning, we're, we're not trying to say this about the character of the person so much. This is a wonderful human being. But here are things he did that made him a hero in the life of the Beach Boys. So it's very, very hard to it's very hard to paint an individual as completely good or completely bad. You know, I don't think, I don't think many people in the story would, would, would fit quite like that. I mean, I guess we got to talk about, you know, the, the good things that were done and the bad things yeah. that were done. And sometimes they were done by the same person. Well, it's, it's out of the, the, the boxes. This will sound, you know, I'm a pastor, you know, that uh, that's one of the things I like about the Bible, even their greatest heroes, they expose their greatest flaws. So I think, uh, you know, Mary Wilson and many of these to follow are, are very similar. So uh, some good stuff. Let's just, uh, you're kind of chronological. I, I'm kind of chronological, although minor categories, as you'll see in a few minutes. But who, number two, where would you, who would you have there? Well, I mentioned them already, and I think they are a big part of the early story, and that's Height and Dorinda Morgan. 
So this was a couple that uh, had their own publishing company called Guild Music, and they had a facility for recording demos. And uh, Murray knew them. I think Murray had done some stuff with them for his own uh, fledgling music career. But, I mean, he brought the boys there. And, uh, you know, Hyten Dorinda, I think, pushed them in, in, a, in a correct direction. I mean, they insisted that the group come up with their own material. And, you know, as, as the legend goes, this prompted Dennis to say, hey, uh, you know, we, we could whip up a song about surfing. And uh, that's, you know, what, what Brian and Mike did. They came up with the, with the song Surfing. Uh, they also gave the boys some of uh, some material to record that, that, that they had come up with, such as Luau and Lavender. These are the earliest recordings of, of, of the Beach Boys. So they signed into a publishing contract. They booked them time at World Pacific Studios to, re- to re-record the demos with Hype producing. They got them signed to uh, Robert and Richard Dix's uh, labels, Candix and X, and uh, this led to the release of Surfing, their first hit, and, and the rest is history. I mean, as mentioned, you know, Murray didn't want to uh, stick with them. He, he thought he could do, uh, do better, and uh, so they left. But, hey, that's, that's a big part of the early story right there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, they're, they're not on my list, so I'll, I'll uh, go to a number two who would be uh, Russ Regan, he was my number uh, three. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, then uh, you can follow up on this. Um, simply, I mean, he's he's famous to me just because he changed their name, you know, from uh, Pendleton's to Tones or Tons or whatever to uh, who to the Beach Boys. And I mean, this is one of those things. How can you quantify how important this was? I mean, when you listen to the music of Brian Wilson and and the, their vocal harmonies, and you know, they were really trendy, all that. You say, well, they would have been a hit anyway. And the answer is maybe, but maybe not. Maybe they just would have been lost in the shuffle, you know, regional hit, maybe a couple more. Who who knows? I mean, anybody can guess and be as smart or as dumb as the rest of us. So uh, it it did happen that he did suggest that name change. And uh, I think that uh, that's a big part of why we're still listening to their music. Um, when you when you step back and you try to get the big picture, it, it just is amazing how many things did happen, and many of them, guessing here again, but many of them it seemed had to happen in order for this thing to be what it's become, uh, really a phenomenon. So uh, I'll put Russ up. He's number three on yours. You want to talk about him or go to your number two? Well, for for those that uh, that don't know who Russ Reagan was, uh, he worked for Buckeye Record Distributors. Uh, so they distributed uh, the product from the Dixes, wh- whom I just mentioned. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't think the Pendletones, I don't think that name would have been very sustainable. I mean, in calling them the Beach Boys, that sort of set the tone for their early records. Hey, they're going to write about surfing, they're going to write about girls on the beach, you know, and, and, and that the band did very well by that for, for its first few years. The name, the Beach Boys, became a problem for them in the early 70s when they were trying to get more hip and, and leave the past behind, and they, they contemplated changing it, perhaps, to Beach. Um, but yeah. I mean, there was no question the right move was to stick with the name because, you know, the legacy is there. And I think, you know, just phonetically, the B-E-A, you know, at the start of that ties them to the Beatles, uh, and that's where they should be tied. You know, they're they're kind of Good. the American Beatles in a way. And when you go to the record stores, if people still do, they go in the racks. Those two bands are right next to each other, and you think, hey, this is these are the glory days of uh, of '60s pop music. 
Very cool. How about your number two? Well, two was heightened Dorinda Morgan, so I'd already be up to oh, number sorry. four. Yeah, go for it. Uh, Nick Vinay. Ah, okay. Did not include him. Go ahead. So Nick Vinay was uh, a capital A&R man, uh, and so he was the guy that Murray was uh, pestering to get the boys signed. And, uh, you know, Nick knew a good thing when he heard it. And uh, those tracks that Murray had recorded with the band that I mentioned earlier, he bought them, and uh, this led to the Beach Boys being on Capitol. And, yeah, I mean, if, if people want to criticize Capitol for the, the way they promoted this or the way they promoted that or the way they released this or didn't release that, I mean, that's, that's fair. Maybe that will uh, crop up in our conversation next time. But, you know, nonetheless, the, the, their biggest success came on Capitol Records, and uh, Nick Vinay was the credited producer on their first two albums. I mean, I think we we understand that Brian, even at that point, was was already the creative force in the studio, and Murray had his voice uh, in there as well. But hey, I mean, Nick, uh, he he got them in Capitol, and uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, good good suggestion, good good one. My next is uh, Fred Vale. Uh, able to do a few podcasts with him and they're on the pray for surf blog uh, site so folks can look those up he's got some inside stories but i uh i just think it's a cool story i mean here's another teenager the guy is still in high school and he's bringing in in the beach boys now they weren't the beach boys back then you know what i mean by that it's not like you know this is this multi-million dollar band showing up they were just like him but he was just like them just this high school kid but, I mean, his whole career has been in music, rock and roll. It's more country now, and I think he's living in Nashville and stuff. But um, for I, I know what I was like as a teenager. What, what, what would have been a, a, a big thing for me to promote or do, and it wouldn't have been on this scale, even though back then, you know, what, again, it still wasn't huge. They weren't that well known. But to bring them from another city to get airline tickets, uh, you know, just most – high school teenagers, at least back then, we're not, think, we're not as enterprising as that. Um, booked them, promoted them, uh, pro provided the context for, which I think is a groundbreaking album, Beach Boys' Concert. Right. Um, you know, I think as Beach Boys fans, we just, I guess I should speak for myself, but I, I think I get a little bit, uh, I don't know, spoiled. It's like, oh yeah, we got a concert album, now we got, you know, three or four. Uh, back then, uh, that was that was America's version of Beatlemania, and and uh, I've heard read some stuff where folks who might know better than I said that uh, frankly some of the Beach Boy mania was equal to that, um, at least in that the context of a particular event or you know that kind of thing. So I think Fred Bale's uh, a part of that. He became a promoter for them, you know. So then you know behind the scenes kind of thing, uh, and then I'll stop with one story. Of, where he uh, was on the podcast that I had with him, he was talking about sitting on the floor, dark room, studio, dark room on the floor with Brian Wilson listening to Pet Sounds before it, I think it had just been mixed or certainly was before it was, you know, out in the public purchase type thing. Uh, just what a, what a story to have kind of walked with them through those years. I, I must admit, I, I, I was disappointed it seemed to me that at one of their 50th reunion concerts, he would have started with uh, his famous, and now to entertain you tonight with a gala concert and recording session, you know, the fabulous Live Beach Boys. from Hawthorne, California. Go, go, go. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, but, I mean, what, what I was just doing was that's the intro to the Beach Boys concert album. And, uh, yeah, I, you make a very good point about that album. I mean, it's not one that I, I pull off the shelf all that much, but what a big album in its day. I mean, supposedly um, the first live album to top the uh, pop music record charts in the U.S. I think and that's it, correct. And it sat there for four weeks. I mean, that's that's huge because there was no Internet. You couldn't look up, you know, clips that people had taken on their smartphones of, of, of the group <laughs> in concert. Either you saw them in concert or you had to buy this album. So uh, it, you're right, a huge deal. Yeah. little trivia on that, that album. Uh, I love that this is how the Beach Boys go about making a record. And then each, you know, each guy gets their little time. I've always wanted, for many, for decades, I'd wonder, what is wrong with... Maybe I don't understand a rhythm guitar. When it says an L on the rhythm guitar, you, almost, you, you don't, I don't know. I don't hear anything. But I've heard some other, I don't want to call it a version. It's the same song, but another mix, I guess, is, was the technical word that would be right here. And it just comes blaring out. So somehow the mix on the concert album, I could be totally wrong, but my ears don't hear Al. I've heard of it on another version, and it's just, just kind of a funny trivia point for me. Well, I'm sure the recording technology was was pretty primitive. Um, although a lot of that stuff was was added in the studio, so you think they could have added uh, ah, a good point. guitar part uh, afterwards, but uh, maybe they wanted it to sound a little bit like you're sitting uh, 30 rows back. Yeah, and and uh, before we go on to your next person, you know, Fred Vale, uh, uh, early promoter, uh, entrepreneur uh, kind of person. It leads me to think a couple other guys. Uh, one is Derek Taylor. Now, he could have his own number, but I kind of clumped these guys together. Uh, he was the Fred Vale of, uh, you know, the late 60s when everybody's wondering what in the world, you know, is happening to the Beach Boys. And uh, uh, he came out with the, you know, Brian is a genius um, ad campaign. It, actually, it, it's Brian is back before, Brian's a genius before Brian is back came out. Uh, right. And I think, you know, Frankly, this one I think was is much more uh, accurate and in tune with who Brian Brian was. Uh, he had been with the Beatles, of course, and you know helped helped. Uh, I don't know if they needed much help, but uh, you know, helped them with their promotional stuff. And uh, they each boys brought him over, and I I think he helped them at an important time. It's around the time of where they decided not to go in to the uh, Monterey Folk Festival, and. and uh, Took some hits there, and you know Carl is with his uh, draft issues. So it it was just a bad time, and I think one bright spot in that time was a guy named Derek Taylor, who, uh, at least for fans uh, like myself, I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal, but you know for fans who were more than just when's the next 409 coming out, but really into the band, um, it it was encouraging to know that okay, I'm not crazy for still wanting still believing there's good music to come from this group. And even though the top 40 is ignoring them, even with good songs, uh, yeah, that this is a group worth uh, hanging on to. Derek yeah, Taylor. he, he uh, apparently came up with the uh, expression pocket symphony in reference to good vibrations. Um, oh, and, you okay. know, be, being from Britain, I mean, I think, you know, when – the group's popularity started to wane in the U.S., uh, you know, to have somebody like him championing the group. I mean, I think the uh, people in the U.K. were the ones that were, were listening to him. Yeah, good point. So he kind of flows out of my Fred Vale thing, but your turn. Who's next? 
Well, yeah, sometimes, I mean, this is a group with a long history and a lot of people involved, so yeah, sometimes grouping them together is the only way to go. So how about uh, the Wrecking Crew? And uh, if, if I had to give special mention to one particular member of the Wrecking Crew, and I mean, there's so many that, that played a big role in, in, in the Beach Boys music, but let's go with Glenn Campbell, because obviously he, he occupies a special place here. But I mean, the Wrecking Crew... Um, you know, as, as Brian's music became more sophisticated, and I, and I don't want to put down the the ability of of the band, the Beach Boys. Like, you know, there's a bit of a myth that 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 was perpetrated for many years that pretty much said that the Wrecking Crew, you know, played on these were session musicians, the top LA session musicians, and that they played on every Beach Boys hit, and that's that's just not true. Not true. Like, don't worry, baby. I, I think you know, unless it's been changed, there's a website that lists, uh, you know, what songs the Wrecking Crew played on, and Don't Worry Baby is one of them. Well, you know, the tapes have surfaced in recent years, and that's not true. That's, it's the band. It's Dennis on drums. It's, it's Al on bass. It's the guys, you know. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, certainly Brian's music got more sophisticated because he wanted to incorporate strings and classical instruments and horns, and the boys were off touring anyway. So, I mean, they, they, he needed, you know, these really super talented musicians that, uh, you know, Hal Blaine you know, called the Wrecking Crew. Uh, there were many of them. Uh, they were extremely talented. Carol Kay on bass was big. Hal on drums. There was Frank Cap, Steve Douglas. We can go on and on. Glenn Campbell played guitar on a lot of Beach Boys hits, and uh, he's a hero because not only that, great guitarist, but you know when Brian suffered, you know what is called his nervous breakdown in late 1964. Glenn uh, got a phone call saying, "Hey, can you uh, fill in for Brian?" And he did for about six months, I believe it was. And, yeah. uh, you know, he stepped in at a, at a time that they needed him and, uh, and did very well, you know. But obviously he was a unique talent and went on to a spectacular uh, solo career. But uh, let's not forget that he was, he was a beach boy for a while there. Yeah, and uh, reading some interviews and et cetera from Glenn, Glenn uh, later on in life, I mean, he, he uh, uh, just loved his time uh, with them. Uh, has some great stories of just you know the 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 beach boy mania aspect of it and and being out there and really not you know he played on the songs but um what i think when you're doing that you're not necessarily thinking of doing this live in concert so just his uh, learning curve so to speak it's just kind of cool stuff uh, but also he often incorporated in his concert a uh, maybe it's a you would say a medley of some beach boy hits and and uh you know it's been fun listening to some of those things uh kind of a little off of that subject but uh recently posted something with uh, an interview with alice cooper of all people saying that his one of his best friends is glenn campbell uh you know is this oil and water at least musically wise uh they golf together i mean it's just a fun fun interview to read so folks can find it on that site but let me just uh, stretch a little bit with this one, go with you uh, in terms of the Wrecking Crew, because I had uh, Hal Blaine and Carol Kay down. I mean, Hal, it's the whole Wrecking Crew, but Hal seemed to, uh, and, and maybe just because these two were interviewed more than some of the others, but in their interviews, Hal and Carol, they both speak very highly of uh, Brian, certainly as the producer, uh, the Beach Boys and their music. It was like Hal saying, you know, we thought here's another rock person coming in, we're just going to do our thing, and they didn't have much respect for that, partly because these were accomplished musicians, classically trained, many of them. And so this this was just doing a, a quick gig to make some money. But I think they found not just only with the Beach Boys and Brian, but certainly with him, uh, no, there's something more here. 
And so Hal Blaine, Carol Kay give, uh, give uh, good props uh, to the Beach Boys. And to stretch it a little bit further, I'll add another name. It wasn't, he's not a uh, wrecking crew person, but in some ways played a role similar to that. And this may surprise you, and you may even push back on this, but uh, the name Jan Berry comes to mind of Jan and Dean. I, I think totally. that, yeah, yeah. for me, uh, I always thought, uh, I'll, you know, expose my ignorance, at least at that point. Uh, I always thought there was the Beach Boys, and I know Jan, Jan and Dean had songs and hits beforehand and all that, but that they were just copying the Beach Boys. And uh, not true. Uh, they, Beach Boys may have kind of turned their focus from the doo-wop stuff, heart and soul stuff, into more of the beach scene, although they were part of that scene just in terms of their lifestyle. Um, but hearing even from Dean Torrance how uh, Jan Berry in the studio was helpful to Brian. I think Brian learned some stuff from Jan Berry in the studio. Now, this may be stretching it, I don't know, but again, read where uh, Brian, uh, Jan, connecting with Jan gave Brian the, the sense to, to uh, begin to incorporate uh, the Wrecking Crew. Now, that could be debated. I'm not sure anybody knows for sure. But I just think Jan Berry plays a role. Certainly, they wrote a few songs together, and some of them were hits. And, and certainly, uh, Jan Berry took uh, Surf City and worked with Brian and, you know, made a cool hit. One, one day, we ought to do a podcast on Brian Wilson's songs during this early period that uh, were not Beach Boys songs and, and yet were great, 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 great music. And then I'll add one more name, one more name, uh, and that is in this kind of uh, uh, wrecking crew thing, uh, the name Chuck Britz comes to mind. I don't know if he's on your list or not. But, okay, so then you know what? I'll hold off until you get to that. So your turn. doesn't have to be Chuck next, but uh, you go. Well, here's another one that's hard to narrow down to one person, and this would be Brian's outside lyricists. I mean, obviously, he had a lot of success writing with Mike Love. Uh, he's written a lot with Carl. He's written a lot with Al. But, uh, you know, there's some key people here that, that he brought in from the outside, and they brought a lot to, to the band and, and the song. Gary Usher being the first one. Um, I, I think, you know, he wasn't around very long because Murray chased him away, essentially. Murray didn't like the yeah. Outsiders, the Interlopers, uh, but Gary co-wrote In My Room. And uh, interestingly, when the band uh, was promoting its recent uh, radio uh, uh, channel on Sirius, um, Brian said that In My Room was really more lyrically Gary Usher than him. I mean, we always associated kind of retroactively because, you know, Brian spent years in his room, but that was, you know, 10 years later. Uh, but, but apparently Gary Usher was uh, the driving force with that lyric, as Didn't he was that. with, sorry, as he was with Lonely Sea as well. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he understood the, the car lingo better than Brian. 409 is another one. So, I mean, they didn't do a lot together in those early days. But, I mean, Gary also, let's give him props. I mean, Gary went on to be a very successful producer. He produced classic albums for the Birds in the late 60s. You know, and in the 80s, he tried to get Brian productive again. And they, they recorded some stuff that uh, was ill-fated. I think Gary sunk some of his own money in there, and these things have not been released. But uh, he was trying to get Brian active again, so he deserves props for that. And he was a very good friend of Brian's. Um, so he's one. 
Roger Christian is another. And boy, did this guy actually write a lot of songs with, with Brian when you think about it. Ballad of Old Betsy, Car Crazy Cutie, Cherry Cherry Coop, Don't Worry Baby, In the Parking Lot, Little Deuce Coop, No Go Showboat, Shut Down, Spirit of America. These are like the great early car songs. He really knew that terrain very well. And, and uh, the Beach Boys did very well by, by his contribution. Uh, and of course, Tony Asher, I mean, he wrote Pet Sounds. I mean, what, what a strange choice for Brian to, you know, he met this guy, they just had a conversation, and he just thought he was good with words, and, and I mean, Tony Asher was an ad man, and, uh, but somehow this, this really clicked. Like, they really came up with some great introspective words for, for the Pet Sounds album. And uh, special mention to Van Dyke Parks, because, you know, I'm a big smile fanatic, and uh, this you know, brought Beach Boys music, Brian's music, in a whole different terrain that I think had it been released in its day, the Smile album, I think it would have connected very well with the hip crowd, the acid crowd, the Summer of Love crowd, uh, very interesting words. And uh, he is the one that uh, wrote the lyrics to Heroes and Villains, which is our topic today, so uh, props to him. Oh, yeah, good stuff. I also had a, a string of... Uh folks like this. So back to the Gary Usher thing. Um, you said it well, good setup. Uh, also, he did the uh, Handel's version of uh, Little Honda. And he stole a top 10 from the Beach Boys there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm a true Beach Boy fan, but I'm also a friend of Chuck Gerard who sang lead on that, that uh, cover version. And I, I think it, it's pretty cool. If it's not maybe the A plus of the Beach Boys, but it's a, it's a straight A or A minus. So it's great, great job on that. But he also did, I, I was reminded looking, looking at some stuff. Uh, one of the songs that he and Brian worked on, uh, Let's Go to Heaven in My Car, uh, you know, decades later, that did come out. And uh, not a bad song, not a bad song. Um, Tony Asher and Van Dyke Parks could not be more different than Mike Love and each other. And yet, wow, it, it, it's almost like when you step back from it, it's almost like Brian had a plan. And I don't know that he really did. If you think in the church, we talk about having divine appointments. You bump into somebody that, you know, you, you had no, didn't know, didn't even pursue. And yet you, you have this relationship and that person uh, changes your life. And it seems like if you go... And, and this is kind of what we're doing in miniature, you know, going from the Gary Ushers and Roger Christians and Mike Love, although Mike is always present in all of these segments, but uh, Tony Asher, Van Dyke Parks, just, uh, uh, I don't know how you could make it any different. Uh, the difference between Lennon and McCartney and, um, you know, Brian and his co-writers, uh, very different approaches and yet, uh, wow, great music in, in both of those things. One thing on Van Dyke Parks, smile certainly, but even afterwards, uh, how, you know, saving the day with Holland was uh, not, not that the contents of Holland were good, but getting it uh, released with Sail on Sailor, bringing that song forward and getting that redone. And then uh, playing, was it accordion or something on Kokomo or I don't know, some, right. some, some involvement with Kokomo. So it's like, when I first heard that, I thought, really? I mean, Kokomo is a Mike Love song, and I thought those two guys were, you know, at each other's throats. Anyway, uh, yeah. Van Dyke maybe... also had uh, shared the lead vocal on A Day in the Life of a Tree. So Jack uh, Riley yeah. uh, starts off that one, but Van Dyke Parks takes it over at the end. So that's weird to think there's a, a Beach Boys song with a lead vocal by those two guys. Exactly. Well, you mentioned Jack Riley. Uh, he was on my list. Uh, not that he deserves his own category, but kind of in this flow. 
another one who uh, came, I think, at the right time, trying to help the Beach Boys resurrect uh, or refresh their, their image, making them more uh, AOR uh, rather than, than uh, uh, rock and roll uh, college crowd. I think he uh, sent them on a, uh, just a very intense college crowd tour. And, uh, you know, I think it paid off. I don't know if you have any comments on Jack Riley, but I think he is in the discussion of heroes stepping in, uh, in, in this case, at a difficult time and helping them get some cred back. Your thoughts? Well, he, he is on my list, actually. Um, you know, and that might be controversial to some. I mean, there's some kind of shady aspects to this guy. Uh, yes. You know, he yes. misrepresented, allegedly misrepresented uh, his credentials to the band when he interviewed them for KPFK Radio. Uh, but you know, he was a smooth talker. He, uh, he just showed up at the Radiant Radish when Brian was working behind the cash and talked his way into an interview. And then, you know, after the interview, talked his way into a PR job and then uh, talked his way into being the manager of the band. Uh, Carl believed in him. Um, but he did play a, a big role. I think this guy was genuinely intelligent and talented and, uh, you know, the Beach Boys were lost because, you know, yeah. they they put everything into their Sunflower album. Great album. Uh, didn't sell it all in the U.S. Uh, so what do you do? You know, how, how do you connect with the hip crowd that you haven't connected with for a number of years? And, uh, you know, he wrote lyrics with the Wilsons. I mean, he was particularly enamored with the talent of, of the three Wilson brothers and, and I think wrote very good lyrics for, for Carl, Brian, and Dennis. Um, you know, songs like Feel Flows and Long Promised Road, You Need a Mess of Help to Stand Alone, Steamboat. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he, told, he told them, hey, you guys should be writing about what's going on. You should be writing about the ecology, and, and it should be very introspective, you know. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted them to promote their hippie lifestyle, like the, the meditation and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. So... You know, maybe there were some misfires. Like, I, I think the great expense that they incurred in shifting their base to Holland yeah. before the Holland yeah. album was yeah. laid at his feet, whether fairly or not. But, I mean, he seemed to like being in Holland. It seemed to fit his lifestyle. So they ended up firing him. But, I mean, when you look back, this was a very interesting phase in the Beach Boys' career. It really bridged, you know, 1970 and Sunflower to, to the Endless Summer era when, when yeah. you know, their their old hits became popular again. They were doing very progressive stuff. It's a very interesting three-album plus live-album phase in their career. It's also the phase where uh, Blondie, Chaplin, and, and Ricky Fatar, South African musicians from The Flame, joined the band. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he deserves a lot of credit for, for making all that happen. Yeah, uh the word mentor comes to to mind. I mean, yeah, producer, promoter, all all those things. But it's almost like when you talk, when I'm listening to you talk about how he was, he's casting a different vision for them, if you will. You know, the ecology, the introspection, etc. Um, you know, maybe his role as a mentor, helping them at least have a plan. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Holland thing, in, in some ways, a debacle of you know the equipment and just uh, easier said than done. But in some ways, just the, back then, any news about the Beach Boy, it, Boys was uh, was 
better than you know not having any anything because uh, they just weren't getting played or talked about or if they were it was just always in the you know oldies juke jukebox kind of thing so uh even stories of what the beach boys are what they're, they're going to holland they're you know taking their whole studio uh, in some ways that might have got them another listen because how wacky is that maybe something is going on there so anyway i'm making probably too much of that but yeah i think jack riley uh stepped in and what were you by our terminology today? You know, kind of a, a, a critical time and uh, brought some heroism to it. Really helped them get a plan. Was it the best one? Uh, you know, it's what it's the one we saw, and some good things happened there. You said Chuck Britz is on your. Uh, yeah, list. he's he's next for me. Um, and, and again, like let's talk about a few of the engineers uh, that worked with the band. I mean, Chuck was the one from like the beginning, really, until until the Smile album. So you know, in the era when Brian was recording in the big studios and, and working with the Wrecking Crew, Chuck was the engineer. Uh, you know, so you had this very professional veteran guy who uh it was a good match with brian who's who was more kind of creative and impulsive i think if you listen to a lot of those sessions chuck is really uh keeping things on track yeah uh, and that's important because uh, some of those sessions would go on and on like the california girls session I, I went for i believe over 40 takes and uh you know you need a pretty steady hand to keep these kind of things under control um so yeah he was he was crucially important uh, Stephen Desper, uh, 1968 to 1972, uh, interesting guy. Um, you know, so now Brian, instead of going to the big studios, was setting up his home studio, and they called Stephen Desper in to really make that home studio up to snuff. Like he didn't want it. I mean, there's a, there's a real kind of DIY charm to Smiley Smile and Wild Honey yeah. those albums, yeah. but uh, they wanted something a little bit better, and, and Stephen Desper was brought in to improve Brian's home studio so they could do really high quality uh, recordings there and and he did a lot of interesting things like whether that's the you know creating this processed drum sound on do it again uh you know he was he was the chief engineer and mixer and um uh, one thing i i learned recently which i wasn't aware of is he also played the moog like first of all you know the, the beach boys really? were an early adapter of the moog and uh it was a huge contraption that that, that they had set up and uh, apparently he played that on All I Want to Do and Cool Cool Water and Feel Flows until I die. So, uh, you know, that's, yeah. he, he experimented too with like quadraphonic sound. He was a, he was a real innovator and, uh, you know, ma made those, those recordings like Sunflower and Surf's Up sound great, sound very, uh, very unique very cool. and progressive. Um, and then, you know, one guy that hardly ever gets mentioned anymore is Stephen Moffat. So, uh, yes. You know, Desper did not make the trip to Holland, and, and, and I've heard it said that the reason for that is he didn't, you know, he didn't fit in with that meditating kind of uh, philosophy yeah. that, that the band wanted to promote. So, uh, but Stephen Moffat did, and, uh, you know, he was involved with recordings, you know, throughout the 70s, from 72 to 78, Um you know, including the ones during the Brian is back era, 15 big ones, and, and the Beach Boys love you. And and by the same token, so is Earl Mankey. Um, and 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 you know, Mankey is a guy that I interviewed for my book. He's a very um, prolific producer. 
and I think he deserves a lot of props for working, you know, with all the Wilson brothers because they had their own studio at this point, uh, Brother Studios, and and you know they could come in and record, uh, you know, for the duration of time they could afford to to maintain the studio. Uh, Earl was there, and uh, they were recording stuff. And you know Dennis was recording stuff that would be uh, make up a specific Ocean Blue album, which is a great album. And, and Earl Mankey was one of those guys that was very supportive of Brian, and and you know doing whatever whatever Brian wanted, you know to to help Brian record some material. So uh, yeah, these guys all played a big role. Yeah, they seem to find with quotes around it. Uh, either they found the right guy at the right time, or the right guy at the right time found them, and you know. Uh, maybe each story is a little different. You know, they they didn't really. I don't think cho- they didn't choose Chuck Britz, but my goodness, what a catalog of recordings that he has with them. But it was time for a, a I don't want to say a change, but but someone who brought a a different um, set of ears and hands, so to speak, to the uh, you know, more of the technological stuff and and the the, the guys who uh, succeeded him. So it's a you know, I don't know. I guess um, shouldn't surprise me as a Beach Boy fan, but whatever whatever perspective we seem to come at to the Beach Boy story, there's just such an interesting line of people, places, and things kind of like. So uh, cool to hear you progress beyond beyond Chuck. I remember the first. I think Sunflower might have been the first album that I remember that I read was reading the liner notes and and uh, you know what they they included the engineer. And I, you know, to show my ignorance, like, well, why would they do that? Well, I've, I've over the years learned uh, he's, uh, what do they say in uh, football? He's the 12th player kind of thing. You know, he's, and, and but although in uh, Stephen Desper's case, he actually was on the field sometimes playing. But uh, anyway, the heroes are uh, these guys who were in the sound booth and we're grateful to them for that. There was a, Jim Lockhart was the guy that uh, was oh, okay. the engineer on the Smiley Smile, uh, Smile. Yeah. recordings, but apparently he got ill and uh, Stephen Desper came in uh, um, okay. know that, so. pretty soon after that. Yeah. Okay, next on your list. Jim Gersio. Ah, uh, yeah, go ahead. So, you know, Jim was a guy that, uh, you know, had played in, in various bands and, and had met the Beach Boys in the 1960s, uh, bass player, uh, classically trained. And uh, anyway, I mean, was friends with them and believed in their music and, of course, went on to uh, a, a real renaissance man. I mean, this guy directed movies. This guy produced huge albums, especially with Chicago, uh, had monster success uh, with them. And uh, anyway, the Beach Boys were kind of lost in the early 70s, as I mentioned before, and Dennis went to see him and, and talked to him, and uh, they, they sort of hatched a plan. Um, and that was to focus more on the catalog. Uh, now, this, I guess, could be controversial, because a lot of people think, oh, no, like they went back to being like a jukebox machine on the road as opposed to playing a lot of their uh, newer material. But... They just weren't uh, weren't making a lot of money, uh, and so his influence was, was to say, "Hey, do all the hits, you know, and let's make people think about uh, old-fashioned summertime fun." Uh, so he became kind of the the band leader with Carl, uh, performed with them a fair bit during this era, 
but he also provided a link with Chicago. Uh, so when the Chicago was recording Wishing You Were Here, uh, the Beach Boys were brought in to provide background vocals on that huge hit. And then he arranged the the Beachago uh, concert, which was a tour, 1975, uh, with, with these two bands. Or was it 76? But, uh, but anyway, they... 76, uh, I think. Yeah, so I mean, the idea was the Beach Boys would open for, for Chicago, and then they would perform together at the end. This was a huge, huge tour, you know, second only, I believe, that year to the, the Rolling Stones tour. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But anyway, I think the steps that, that Jim took, uh, getting them to do a lot of colleges and getting them to do the old hits, uh, it, it struck a chord with people, you know, who were going through Watergate and, you know, nostalgia seemed like a, uh, a good bet at that time. And, and, you know, the Beach Boys had a couple of songs in American Graffiti, which was a huge hit film. So uh, this all really led to um, the Endless Summer album coming out and, and being number one. But, I mean, he also wanted them to, to continue recording music. He brought them to his Caribou Ranch studio. Uh, unfortunately, not much came out of that uh, with Brian there. Brian was in a kind of a rough state at that time. And, uh, you know, they did lay down the foundation for Good Timing, which was one of their best 70s songs. Um, and he also signed Dennis and Carl to, to solo deals. And, um, you know, that's great. He really believed in, in their talents. And, uh, you know, the Pacific Ocean Blue album, thank God for that. And he, he spearheaded the 2008 re-release of that album. He persuaded CBS uh, Records to sign the band to an $8.5 million deal, which pretty crazy. That's in uh, 1970s money, by the way. Uh, you know, and that yielded stuff like L.A. albums. Did, did CBS get their money's worth? I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but hey, he was, he was in the band's corner for sure. He sure was. Uh, you mentioned the Caribou Sessions. Uh, uh, you may know better than I. I do know that there was a fire, so I don't know if some songs that maybe they laid down or tracks got lost. Uh, I've never seen a discography, so to speak, of what may have been, but well, I, I think they, um, a lot of that stuff exists. Uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic, I mean, unfortunately that exists. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Child of Winter, which uh, was a great Christmas song that Brian uh, wrote with Stephen Kalinich, and let's give him props for, for writing with yeah. the Boys as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, but there's just, there's just not much. It wasn't enough. They were trying to get an album out of this, and there just was not enough material. Yeah, no, that uh, you just mentioned that song, Child of Winter. I think it was released on Christmas Eve. Like, uh, you know, how many? I'm, I'm not sure they expected much sales, but um, an un underrated Beach Boy tune from the day, yeah. for sure. Okay, let me go in a different direction. Um, Marilyn Wilson. That's a good one. Um, of course, Marilyn, uh, you know, girlfriend and wife, of course. Uh, the Honeys, uh, again, if we ever do a Brian Wilson songs outside of the Beach Boys back in that decade, uh, you know, their, their tunes would certainly be part of that. And Spring, American Spring, as the name had to be changed and all that. So I won't call her a protege, but certainly, you know, uh, personal and musical. But I think especially the hero part is uh, I think she gave Brian a sense of home. Uh, and I use that word instead of family i'm not sure brian uh, i want to be careful here i just family life was was difficult for him so i'm uh, I, you know who am i to say what brian wanted or needed but from my outside perspective i think that uh especially during the 
you know, the in the bed, uh, didn't leave his bed and or, or bedroom time uh, or episodes. Uh, you know, I think she worked very hard to give him a sense of home safety and also, uh, you know, parenting, mothering for uh, Carney and Wendy. Uh, difficult times. I know their marriage, uh, you know, ended, divorced, but uh, I think there's somewhat friends today, I hope, but um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I just think that, uh, you know, she, she was, uh, she loved him, and, but uh, from a beach boy point of view, uh, it was attempting to be a stalwart during some difficult times. Any comments? Yeah, I mean, she, she stuck around as long as she could. Um, yeah, and, you know, she was the influence on, on a lot of songs, uh, like oh, Kiss Your Baby and Don't Worry Baby. Um, and you're right, the whole family, like, I mean, you know, the, 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 the situation at the Wilson family home was untenable. And so, yes, I mean, let's, I, I, you know, you should give props maybe to the whole family. Let's include uh, the parents of, uh, of Marilyn May and Irving Rovell, who accepted yeah. Brian into the home, you know, made him all the matzo ball soup he could possibly eat. <laughs> uh, yeah. they, they accepted the relationship. I mean, Marilyn was, was a lot younger than Brian, but they accepted this. And, uh, yeah, it gave, it gave not, not just Brian, but the whole band and Jan and Dean a place to hang out that was, uh, that was very safe and, and very welcoming. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about the Ravel family is it kind of messed with uh, – the girls messed with Brian's emotions. You know, I don't, I don't even mean deliberately, but, you know, Brian – was kind of you know young and confused and feeling his way and you know do I do I love Marilyn or do I love Diane or do I love Barbara you know this like this thing like <laughs> this went on this saga went on uh, well into the 70s but uh, we don't have to get into all that but uh, yeah but anyway so yes the Ravels were like uh, an alternate family for uh, for Brian yeah very important okay next on your list. All right, are you ready for the controversial one? I'm ready, and I think I know who you're going to say, but I'll, I'll uh, be honest if it's, if it's not. You probably do. Eugene Landy. Yeah, that's who I was going to – that's that's my next one. <laughs> Go ahead. And this is interesting, too, because uh, just the other day online I was I was getting into it with some guy who said, oh, you know, he's often painted as a as a bad guy, but I met him, and he was nice. He, he's not, he was not so bad. I mean, I don't think nice manners, you know – are necessarily tied to morality, but I'm sure we'll be talking about Eugene Landy at a later point, but let's just say this. Um, he probably saved Brian's wife, and that's no small thing. Um, when they brought him in in 76 uh, to uh, Brian, you know, was in his bed for a couple of years and in bad shape and living an unhealthy lifestyle, he came in, he got rid of the drugs, the booze, the cigarettes, the fatty foods. He charged $20,000 a month for this service, which is crazy. Uh, but Brian lost 40 pounds. Brian recorded the Beach Boys Love You. Uh, you know, he got fired, Landy did, because he tried to run band meetings. He obviously had aspirations um, in showbiz, and the rest of the band couldn't take it after a while. So there he was gone, but, uh, you know, Brian reverted to his old unhealthy ways uh, in the early 80s. He weighed 340 pounds, and uh, nobody could get to him. Like, you know, whichever therapist they tried uh, would have no effect. So they had no choice but to rehire Eugene Landy in 1983. And uh, once again, Landy got Brian 
uh, in good shape. I mean, when you see the pictures of how Brian thinned, you know, in that era, it's stunning. Like, his, to go from 340 pounds, he looked great uh, in the mid-'80s. It was stunning. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk for sure about the bad things yeah. that Eugene Landy did, but let's just say, I mean, I, I asked Brian straight out about Landy because, you know, there's this Love and Mercy movie that came out, which is, which is a very interesting indie movie. Uh, I think the portrayal of Landy is a little bit too one-dimensional. I mean, you know, he should have a longer mustache, so he should twirl it like he's that kind of villain, you know, <laughs> total, total villain. Um, but, you know, so that, that's, that's the image that people get. And so when Brian, you know, was doing uh, promotion for this movie, like, I mean, Brian seemingly just bought into this portrayal of Landy. But I think he, Brian just goes with the flow. I think if, we, if Brian ever talked uh, more candidly about his feelings of Eugene Landy, I think it would be quite a different story. Uh, I think the narrative would be different because, for example, this was a story told to me by Carney Wilson. When, when Eugene Landy, and Carney Wilson hated Eugene Landy, by the way, but she said that when, when Landy passed away, I believe in 2006, Brian came over to their house, uh, Carney and, and her husband, Rob Bonfilio, who's currently playing with Brian's band, and uh, he said, Dr. Landy died today. I know a lot of people didn't like him, but I loved him. And uh, mm-hmm. then they proceeded wow. to together record a song called My Secret Love by uh, Doris Day. So, you know, Brian's secret love. I think it's, it's, it's very yeah. telling. Wow. It, great background stuff there, Mark. Um, yeah, I, I must admit, you know, over the years uh, when, uh, you know, we, you'd know about the bad stuff and then you'd, I, I would hear or read a quote of Brian kind of saying maybe the opposite or uh, something pro-Landy. At that point, and this is wrong, but I just assumed, well, Brian doesn't know what he's saying or, you know, Brian was so drugged he doesn't know. And I think that does Brian a disservice to think that he is incapable of, you know, distinguishing good and bad and what he liked and what he didn't like. But uh, I'll just affirm what you've said. Gene Landy, Eugene Landy was on my list, and I just had the same three words. He saved, saved Brian's life. And uh, I, I think I, I, I – sorry, I started a thought there that I never finished. I just wanted to say that I asked Brian point blank about Eugene Landy and, and what good he did, and Brian simply replied that he got me in shape, he got me healthy. So – that's yeah, a couple of good songs out of that. A couple of good songs came around that time, right? I'm in great shape and uh, too much sugar and, you know, they're of the time. But I'm glad they're in the Brian Wilson Beach Boy catalog. So. Gene Landy, amazing guy. Okay, here's one for that may surprise you uh, as we're winding down here. Um, in my view... Uh, he is the Bruce Johnston of the uh, of the 80s. And by what I mean by that is Bruce. Right now he's a Beach Boy, full fledged. You know, not in terms of the the uh, official corporation and all that kind of legal stuff. But uh, you know, he's been a Beach Boy longer than than you know than just about anybody at this point. But he, you know, he came in and uh, so in some ways Bruce is a hero. I mean, Bruce stepped in at a critical time and didn't miss a beat. Sorry about the musical pun. Uh, before he knew it, you know, he's on tour. And before, the, pretty quick after that, he's, uh, you know, singing parts on 
California girls, and God only knows. I mean, he could have quit right then and felt like he had a career. I mean, it's just, just an amazing story. So, yeah, Bruce is a hero. He's one of my hero, Beach Boy heroes, because first time I got to go backstage uh, with a friend of mine named Dave, Dave Hombo, uh, he and uh, I got to speak with Bruce. We made up this concoction, forgive me, sideline, Phil, you know, making use of um, unfair use of telling his stories. But uh, the radio station, WCFL, we, the two of us called so many times that they thought we had this huge fan club. So one day I called and happened to be the winning caller for the Best of the Beach Boys album during the time that they were using it to promote the concert the Beach Boys were going to have in Chicago that, that summer. And he said, hey, hang on to the phone. So afterwards, after, uh, you know, they took my name and all that stuff, he said, uh, we'll get you uh, tickets to the concert and uh, we'll, uh, we're introducing the, the band. We'll have your, your fan club stand up thinking that there would be, I assume in his mind, hundreds of people stand up. And I, it just, it, you know, fear just hit me because it's like me and this other guy. So I said, well, you know, we're not sure they'll all be at that show. There's two shows. Uh, anyway, we got to go backstage and we, we didn't know what to give Bruce. And so we took, I, I promise, I'm almost done. We took this sheet, literally a bed sheet, and just scrawled on it, welcome to Chicago, Bruce, or something and it was horrible. It wasn't professional, but it was our, our way of getting backstage. We gave it to him. I'm sure he left it in the uh, the, the dressing room and never thought of Probably it Probably hanging so in I, his living room to this very day. Oh, oh yeah. Well, yeah, somehow then I also had his phone number. I got to talk to him during Heroes of Villains Day. But uh, my point is that uh, Bruce, is a, Bruce is a hero leading up to the, the name that I really was originally going to say, and that is Jeffrey Foskett. Um you know, and story of uh, actually his his first beach one encounter was Brian Wilson, you know, finding his house and knocking on the door. And uh, I think sometimes just persistence pays off. And eventually Carl and Mike uh, having heard, heard his, Mike having heard his band, uh, Carl maybe liking his guitar play, whatever. Uh, in my view, he just as Bruce at one point became the so-called sixth beach boy, I think he filled that role. I don't think he's ever been given that that title, although I found recently a, a, a quote that said, let me find it here, um, that basically he was the, uh, the principal, I'm looking for the exact right word, you can't find it, but yeah, the vice principal of the Beach Boys by the core members. So, so there's a lot of uh, you know, wonderful people, Ed Carter and others who, who you know, the Beach Boy band and um, Billy Hinchy and, and others. I and Billy was Billy. Yeah, and Billy is uh, certainly a family member, but, uh, you know, brother-in-law kind of thing with Carl. But I just think there's a spot that Jeffrey has carved out for himself. Faithful, I mean, some are angry at him. He, you know, left Brian and went to, back to the Beach Boys and all that stuff. But I think he's been faithful. His voice is probably on more records than, than we think. Uh, I think he's part of the Mike Love's new uh, Reason for the Season album, playing on the songs and singing and stuff. So anyway, I just think he uh, followed his dream but uh, help them vocally uh, have vocal credibility at a, at a time when people were rediscovering their music. And I don't think the rediscovery, I'll stop with this, Mark, and then you talk, but I don't think people, I don't think the rediscover, the rediscovery seems to continue to increase and expand. I don't think that would have happened, at least in that, that measure, had the, the the live vocal sound, and then as they made records like uh, so I got made a radio, 
I, I just think he filled an important place. And of course, he doesn't sound like Carl. Nobody does. Who can? But he made it sound good and beach boyish. And uh, I think we owe a lot to him. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was I guess, born to do it. I mean, he's been doing it uh, from the 80s uh, to the present day, and, you know, as you say, like w- with with Brian for a long time and, and now with Mike Love and Bruce Johnston. So, yeah, he's uh, he's been a, a solid contributor. Good. You got another name or two? We'll wrap it up pretty quick here. Yep. Uh, Mark Lynette and Alan Boyd. Okay. Oh, yeah, so, Alan, yeah. Yeah, you That's talked hard. about the uh, the resurgent interest, and I think these guys have played a huge role in that. Uh, oh, Mark Lynette is a, a producer and an engineer, and uh, he was hired to uh, coordinate the CD releases of the 1960s album, starting with Pet Sounds. I mean, a lot of this stuff had been out of print, you know, uh, yes. for a number of years. So I think there was a lot of rediscovery, and with with great bonus tracks. Uh, he also, you know, at an early time in the 80s, uh, late 80s, uh, started digging out the Smile tapes. So that process began way back then. Uh, and, you know, Alan Boyd came on the scene and, and he was put in charge of the archive. I mean, the group has nothing to do with these guys really in terms of, of, of handling the archive. These guys are really in charge of it. Um, they dug up a lot of stuff and, and you know, co-produced box sets, the 1993 Good Vibrations box set, the Pet Sound Sessions, you know, working with David Leaf and others, uh, the Smile Sessions, Made in California, uh, Mark Lynette um, engineered the a lot of Brian's albums, including uh, Brian Wilson Presents Smile, so that's a huge feat. Um, and, you know, he's a guy that also has heard those original tapes many times. He was He was working on those. So, uh, and Alan, I think, has just been a good soldier for the band for, for many, many years, being in charge of the archive. And also, um, he made the documentary Endless Harmony, The Beach Boy Story, which I think might be the best uh, documentary out there about the group. So, I, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is, our, you know, uh, a, a new appreciation of, of the group's recordings was made possible by the work of these guys. Yeah, certainly. Very professional guys. Um but yet, and I think you're one, and there's a, a a cloud of people, a bunch of people, various professional skills. You like journalism and, and uh, uh, lock just your memory of, of things. Uh, but, but these two, you're like that. These two guys are, uh, but they're also fans. I guess that's what I'm stumbling to say. High professionals do their job well. But when you see what they do or hear what they do or read what they do, it's, it's like the, the, this is one fan talking to each other, which is why I really like our conversations because, you know, your knowledge is knowledgeable, but it's also uh, coming from a place of a fan. So that was that whole perspective of what, you, what these two guys bring was not on my radar screen. So thanks. Glad you included that. Anything else you want to say about those guys? No, I think that's good. I mean, uh, yeah, Alan Boyd, a particular good. super fan, I would say. Yeah, which leads me to some names that uh, I had kind of following after Derek Taylor, but, but that maybe these three fit. Um, Paul Williams, David Leaf, David uh-huh. Beard. Um, um, they're all different, but they're, they're writers a bit. Uh, you know, Paul Williams, a rock critic. Some say the very first real rock critic. Uh, David Leaf. Beach Boys in California myth, a friend of the band, not uh, kind of insider writing 
the out, kind of in and out kind of person. Um, David Beard uh, chronicling through End of Summer Quarterly, you know, the, the, the Beach Boy story. And it's a fanzine, but really not. It's more a journal than it is a fanzine. And I'm so grateful for that because there's some Beach Boy history that comes a little bit, even just little tiny tidbits comes out in each of those issues. Uh, so I'll just go through them again quickly. But Paul Williams just, I was unaware of him, but when the Crawdaddy magazines came out, I forget exactly what year they were, it was late 68 or whatever year, but it just, it, it was another one of those things that helped me uh, in my Beach Boy insanity say, I'm not, I'm really not insane. Uh, here's someone else who, who gets it. Not that I knew what he knew, but uh, again, just, uh, hang on to these guys. Keep following them because there there is something here more than than just uh, you know again some car songs. Uh, David Leaf, uh, same kind of thing. Uh, certainly his book, but uh, he did a uh, well. What would you call it? It's a newspaper, but it's only like two or three pages. But newspaper type uh, print uh, pet sounds. Oh, pet pet sounds. Yeah. 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 So got those in, in real time. And again, it was like, this is the, the no internet. And sometimes if, if the press did cover something Beach Boys, it was just, you know, surface, uh, what's your favorite color stuff. So this was solid, like solid stuff about them and their music. And it, again, built the credibility. I did some looking online with David Leaf. And this, I thought this was just fun. Uh, the, on Goodreads, the rating you know how they rate one through five stars on some of those things how'd you rate the book his rating average was uh, 4.09 i just thought that was kind of cool <laughs> wow and then uh, well, one more and then david beard i mentioned him with uh, all the stuff he's doing and taking back uh, chronicling the, the the history go ahead well i like what you're saying and that taps into my my final uh position as well um and i have some some different names to add, but I mean David Leaf is one of them uh, because I mean it, it's very personal to me because um, you know it was my cousin, my older cousin, who introduced me to the Beach Boys and took me to see my first Beach Boys show in Montreal, the Montreal Forum in 1979, and uh, as a present uh, for taking me, my mother uh, or sorry I should say my my cousin, my, my my family had bought the tickets, my cousin took me. And as a way of saying thank you, my cousin gave me the David Leaf book as a ten-year-old. So I mean, I, I, held on, I held on to this book for many, many years. <laughs> I, read, I read about I read about Smile and Pet Sounds, which I couldn't find anywhere, and, yeah. and Wild Honey and Sunflower. And it really, this is what cast a spell on me. This is what inspired me to to later on, when I was a bit older, to to dig deep and into the story oh, and, and cool. into this music. So. And, you know, David, I have to say, was, was a big assist to me in writing my book. He, uh, he introduced me to some of the key players who ended up speaking to me, so I'm, I'm forever grateful to him for that. But, I mean, he, you know, he did other stuff as well. He wrote the liner notes for these CD releases that we talked about. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, had a lot of great insights. Interviewed Paul McCartney for, uh, for the Pet Sounds uh, CD release. Um, you know the excuse me the Brian Wilson album. He wrote very copious notes for that 1988 album. He was involved in the uh, 25th anniversary concert in Hawaii. He produced the Brian Wilson tribute at Carnegie Hall, and he's a talented filmmaker. He made a great documentary. He made great documentaries yes. about John Lennon and James Brown, and he did the Beautiful Dreamer documentary about Smile, which is fantastic as well. So he's done a lot to help 
you know, keep that myth going and, and, and to pump it up. Totally agree. Were, were there some other names along with it? I mean, you, you've, yes. you've done a yes. great I mean, resident. Well, before you, I, I asked you to go on, but then I interrupt you. Uh, just want to say, yeah, what a hero David Leaf uh, is. And right person, the right time. We, we needed that then. Uh, you, know, you know, living through that in real time, all those things you mentioned, it's like no one else was doing anything of substance. Uh, I think for fans who are, you know, not maybe Beach Boy fans of the last, you know, 10, 15 years or since their resurgence just don't get it that uh, they, you know, they were invisible. Uh, anyway, I've said that before. So thank you, David Leaf. Go on uh, with the others. Well, so, yeah, I mean, you know, having written a book about the Beach Boys myself, I mean, I have to credit uh, the writers that came before, and each one sort of built on, on what the previous one had done. Let's start with Jules Siegel, who wrote the famous uh, piece, Goodbye Surfing, Hello God, oh, yeah. the religious conversion yeah. of Brian Wilson, uh, which was uh, in Cheetah magazine and, and, and chronicled, you know, the making yeah. of the Smile album and its collapse. So, I mean, this the Smile myth, you know, that's that's all the information that we had really for for many years about that. So that that was a big one. Tom Nolan, who uh, who wrote the the famous two part California saga in Rolling Stone magazine. Rolling Stone, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this was at the time of the Surf's Up album. This all contributed to interest, renewed interest in the band, and we got insights into Brian's problems and into you know the relationship with Murray and all kinds of interesting things. So that was huge, and I just like to say. Jan Wenner, the uh, the editor of uh, of Rolling Stone, has <clears throat> excuse me has played a big role as well. I mean, he, not only for running that piece, but <clears throat> the the evolution of of his writings about the Beach Boys uh, sort of mirror what the, what the hip community felt about the Beach Boys. Like I think yeah. in the late '60s, he dissed them. He said that they just are another band that got messed up trying to compete with the Beatles, and they just could not compete with the Beatles. He called Sloop John B. You know, you know, uh, a step forward, but still dumb. You know, uh, mm-hmm. so Rolling Stone was not giving good press to to the Beach Boys at that era, and and America, like he was basically in tune with what most American music fans were thinking. But you know, the Beach Boys live performances were becoming fantastic, and that could not be denied. And it was a nice mix of the classics with. The progressive, the new material, and and I think people started taking notice at the Big Sur Folk Festival in 1970. And Jan Wenner said the Beach Boys were the best group of the day. You know, they had the horn section. I mean, those tapes are around. They're fantastic. Aren't you glad? Oh my goodness! Yeah. Block number nine. You know, etc. Cotton fields. So you know that started a a sort of uh, a different a turn in thinking about the Beach Boys. And then, you know, from there, uh, you know, Surf's Up gets great review in, in Rolling Stone and great coverage. Uh, they named the Holland album one of the five best albums of 1973. And then they named the Beach Boys Group of the Year in 1974. And that's, you know, when things really took off. So, uh, you know, Rolling Stone played a big part. Very cool. Kind of needed to roll it down now. Any, how about this? Any other names on your list? Maybe we just mention them comments anything well I, i'm glad that you mentioned some of the ones that i i really wanted to mention like jan and dean i mean dean torrance as well you know uh lent his vocals 
to sure. Brian Wilson songs, whether they were, uh, you know, for Jan and Dean, like Surf City, in which they both sing, uh, Brian and, and Dean, uh, Barbara Ann for the Beach Boys. Uh, and Dean was there the whole time. He, he, you know, he took pictures, he did artwork, uh, he designed their logo. Yes, that's right. Album you covers, know? sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, he performed with with Mike Love uh, in later years. Jan and Dean performed with the Beach Boys in in later years when they had a, a resurgence as well. So yeah, and and you know their music was an influence uh, on the Beach Boys at the very beginning because they'd already had hits, and and the Beach Boys kind of modeled themselves after that. They performed together, and you know when 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 the Beach Boys took off and became the bigger band, they they didn't forget Jan and Dean. That that's friendship and partnership lasted as long as it could. Uh, I'd like to mention quickly Dick Reynolds, um, who was an arranger for Freshman, so obviously had a huge influence on Brian and also did the strings and arrangements for the Christmas album for the, you know the, the second side. And uh, later the Adult Child album, which was never officially released, although some of the tracks did. So he, he really taught Brian how to work with uh, with strings and, and, and an orchestra. So I think... Uh, I think he deserves special mention as well. Uh, great mention. I'll do a couple of quick ones. Uh, this one came late to me. Terry Melcher, uh, Get yeah. You Back, Kokomo. Um, frankly, a, a lot of that was spurred by reading a current article uh, in Endless Summer Quarterly and just, you know, the, the role that he played, uh, you know, John Phillips as well. But um, some information I was unaware of. So just, uh, you know, right person, right time. Um, so Terry Melcher, and uh, then real quickly another name, Ed Roach, photographer, uh, well-known rock and roll photographer, and um, not well-known. Um, well, I shouldn't say. He took a lot I mean, of pictures of the band. Like he yeah. you know, became pals with Dennis in the late '60s, and it's amazing uh, how many pictures he took. Some of which uh, I licensed for my book. Ah, very cool. Yeah, so uh, maybe it's a conversation we should uh, triangulate someday with uh, with Ed. But you know, the, the photographer. I guess what we're trying to do here is, is name the, the heroes. But you know, when you step back from who they are by name, you recognize what kind of roles maybe would be the word R O L E S roles people. Uh, what roles are needed? Uh, you know, uh, to make something happen. And it, you know, the old it takes a village. You know, it takes a whole lot of not just different people but different people with different skills, photography, one of them. Um, I'm in a bunch, as you are, a bunch of Facebook groups on Beach Boys and you know Al Jardine and friends and all that kind of stuff. And some folks are finding photos I've never seen before. And I'm wondering, where in the world are they finding them? I don't care where they found them. I'm just glad they did. It's fun to see those things. So maybe we'll talk with Ed Roach sometime. But last name I'll mention, and then we'll close here, is you, you mentioned uh, writers and uh, there's a writer that, that I want to thank, and that's Mark Dillon. Uh, Mark, for 50 Sides of the Beach Boys. Um, uh, love the, the content of the book. You got other people talking about their music. Uh, you know, now that I've had conversations with you, I think back to how you put yourself into the, the, uh, many of these chapters without overtaking that person. You, you took very, some of the, some of the chapters, you take very few quotes. They're, they're, salient quotes, but you make a whole chapter out of it without making it sound like you've, you know, gone into your own thing. Anyway, I'm, uh, I hope that's a compliment to you because I mean it that way. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, I hope you've got another book. Yeah, I know you've got another book in you, but uh, I hope that it will get done someday. So thanks for your work. Thanks for being a, uh, a partner on this thing and uh, love hearing your insights. 
Anything else you want to say about the heroes of the heroes and villains? Well, I, I just want to say thank you for what you just said. And I mean, uh, you know, uh, a lot of it was made possible by, by many of the people we've mentioned today, many of these heroes, you know, whether it's somebody like David Leaf or getting interviews with Hal Blaine and Carol Kay. And, and Bruce Johnston was huge because, uh, you know, dealing with Beach Boys management, they just basically forwarded my email request to the Beach Boys and whatever happened, happened. And then one day I opened my email and there's an email from Bruce Johnston saying, oh, I love the idea for your book. Let's talk. And you should talk to this person. You should talk to that person about this and about that. And, uh, you know, I had a great interview with him and he was, you know, always willing to answer my emails about uh, historical questions about who played on what. So, uh yeah, the heroes uh, really, uh, really helped me make that book possible. Well, very cool. Yeah, there he is again. Bruce is is uh, as much a fan, even on stage. Like uh, anyway, we we won't go into another podcast, but good guy. So, Mark, thanks, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, we'll get a, a list of villains together and uh, see what each other thinks. Too bad it's not Halloween. Maybe that would have been a good one to time with Halloween, but we'll just have to uh, <laughs> we'll just have to do it anyway. Sounds good. Thanks, everyone, for listening.